The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. Hello, Genesis. Hello. Hey, welcome to Genesis. My name is Michael. I'm glad you guys are here. Um, thanks for coming tonight. Uh, uh, just a little bit ago, we had a, uh, a, um, a Genesis meeting, as it were, uh, about one of the things that Genesis is doing, not just one of the things, but the big thing that uh, is on our uh, radar right now is Genesis is in launch mode, uh, meaning we are in the, the process of taking what we have here and being planted and established as a brand new church um, uh, in this area. And so uh, quick history is Genesis has been going at it for about three years, and uh, we have been seeking the Lord over the past year, specifically over, God, what do you want to do with this community uh, called Genesis? And so we spent a lot of time praying and a lot of time just uh, sitting with the Lord. And about a month ago is when uh, the decision was made in a partnership with Hope Christian Church, which this is where we are gathering right now, uh, as well as Genesis to say, hey, God's calling this community here uh, to be established as a brand new church. It's a big deal. It's very exciting, and I'm excited about it. And uh, we spent the last hour uh, downstairs talking about what does it mean for Genesis to be a church. And uh, two weeks from now, as you guys um, were coming in, you might have seen some of these. I'd encourage you to take one uh, on your way out. But uh, it's a little half sheet of paper. looks just like that. And uh, this is kind of what we walked through downstairs. And this was written in such a way where if you weren't there, you can catch the gist of what the meeting was about. So we talk about what does Genesis as a church mean? I'll be very simple. If you want to know what Genesis as a church is, we're going to love Jesus and we're going to love people. Uh, I can really sum up everything we're going to be and we are as a church is we will be unapologetic in how much we love Jesus and unapologetic in how much we're going to love the community and the culture uh, where God plants us. And so uh, I am hoping and praying that uh, God has kind of placed that burden on you as well, uh, because this is not going to be a church planted by one person uh, or two people or three people. Uh, what I challenged folks with downstairs was we're all church planters, and one of the opportunities that we have in this is to be founders of something that will outlast us. I didn't think I was going to share this story, but I'm going to talk. So um, singing about uh, uh, Park Street, which is uh, a really great church in downtown Boston area. Uh, this last month or so, uh, today actually is their celebration, but they have been uh, celebrating their bicentennial uh, anniversary, meaning 200 years this church has been going at it. As I've been thinking about, wow, what that must be like if the founders just were able to see, wow, 200 years ago, a group of people like this got together and said, hey, what would it look like to start a church that's going to love Jesus and love this city? And uh, 200 years later, they're still going at it. And uh, I have a feeling, I don't even know who they were, but uh, they dreamed and prayed and talked about something that would outlast them. And that's what we're talking about doing here. We're not talking about establishing a church that will be around for two or three years. It will be kind of cool. It will be different. Uh, we're talking about establishing a church Jesus establishing a church that will outlast every single person in this room. And I hope and pray that it would be a commitment by everyone that we are going to give, our some, give ourselves to something far greater uh, than just ourselves. And so this is an incredible opportunity we have, that you have, 
uh, to step up and say, I want to be a founder. I want to be part of this thing from the very get-go. Two weeks from now on Sunday, May 3rd, is uh, we're going to give you the opportunity as a community uh, to say, hey, I'm going to be part of the core community that's going to establish Genesis as a brand new church. We're looking uh, to launch out into the community. Uh, We're looking at Woburn right now as one of our primary areas, and it's a very strategic location uh, in many ways, but uh, that's where we're focusing a lot of our energy on. And uh, two weeks from now, you'll have the opportunity to say, count me in. I want to be part of that core community that is going to be founding and planting and establishing uh, this church called Genesis. So please be praying about that. Uh, On this half sheet of paper, it walks through what does it mean to be part of the core uh, community. So plenty of information with some other things in terms of announcements and things coming up and uh, some of the needs that we have in the community that we as a community need to begin uh, to meet. So welcome. Uh, I'm excited about what God's doing, and I'm excited that we can do this uh, together um, because God's called us to do it. So let me uh, pray for us, and then we're going to jump into uh, our Jesus series. Uh, we uh, were off last week celebrating Easter through baptisms and uh, hearing how Jesus has changed people's lives, and uh, tonight we're going to jump back into uh, Mark chapter 8. God, you're a great God, and uh, there is no God who is like you. And uh, what a great gift it is to come together with friends and family just in this community and uh, let you know that we love you. Uh, we can do that throughout the week, uh, but we get to do it once a week in the context of together as a community. God, I pray that your voice would be the loudest voice in this room tonight. You know where every single person uh, is. Uh, God, there might be people here tonight who are asking questions about you. They're trying to figure out who you are. There might be people who are just overwhelmed with guilt or fear or shame or anxiety. God, you are a God who can speak to every human heart. And I pray, God, that you would speak and we would respond. Uh, So be good to us in this place tonight as we uh, open up uh, your story, uh, the Holy Scriptures, um, and the Gospel of Mark. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever, um, I was thinking about this, have you ever had someone... I don't know, they were explaining something to you, right? And um, you're kind of listening, doing the, like the head shake, like I'm paying attention to you, but I just, I don't have a clue as to what you're talking about. And you're kind of faking the person out, so to speak, um, that you're like, yeah, that's, that's incredible, that's amazing, and blah, blah, blah. And, but you honestly have not a clue as to what the, the, the person is talking about. Um, I was thinking about this. This was one of my worst foot-in-mouth moments, and um, uh, we were visiting a church actually in Wisconsin, um, and um, Kyla and I were visiting a church. After church is over, a couple said, hey, we'd love to take you guys out to lunch, and we're like, sweet, free food, we'll go, and uh, this guy starts to tell me his story um, because I love asking questions, and I love kind of probing and just getting to know people and their story, and he said, yeah, I just, you know, had a pretty serious bout with, uh, with cancer, and so he's opening up and telling me his, uh, his story and just all of these things, and uh, he was talking about how he uh, had colon cancer and how his colon was removed, and um, just kind of keeping it very basic, very general, and I'll confess to you, I had no idea what the colon was. Um, I didn't know what the colon did. I'm just like nodding my head. I'm like, wow, that's phenomenal. You don't have a colon anymore, and and so I'm like, so how does that work? Like, you don't, 
you don't have a colon anymore. And he kind of looked at me strange, and, and uh, Kyla's face is like bright red, and I'm like, what's wrong with you? Like, that's, a, that's an honest question. And uh, so he's like, well, you know, I have a little bag that's uh, off to my side, you know, I think it's called a palat. All right, very impressive, Genesis. I didn't know this. And by the way, this was like a few years ago. This wasn't like last week. And uh, so I'm asking about the bag. And um, I have no clue what he's talking about. And I keep digging myself further and further into this hole. And Kyla's kind of doing the kick under the table. And I'm like, woman, what, why are you striking me? And um, so finally, he's telling me about the details of the bag. I still did not understand what he was talking about. And I continue to press this further and further. It was a very weird lunch, apparently. We get to the car, and Kyla was like, what is wrong with you? And um, I'm like, what? She's like, you don't know what a colon is, do you? And I was like, no. I have no idea what a colon is. I don't know how a colon operates. Did I say something stupid? And uh, so she very graciously inform me of why this man was very awkward and it was weird because you replayed the conversation. I was like, I can't believe I asked that question. I can't believe I was asking about the bag and what was in it and how it works. And it was just a mess. Not literally, but um, oh, I know, I know. It's one thing when like that happens where you just, you don't get it, right? Like someone's explaining something to you in the physical realm, as it were, and you're just kind of clueless. You just don't understand, like me, I didn't understand what this guy was talking about. And I kept getting in further and further and further. That's, you know, it is what it is. But what happens when in the spiritual realm, in our relationship that we have with God or could have with God, we just keep missing the point. We just don't get it. We hear Scripture. We hear Jesus saying these things, but we're just not getting it. It's not registering. And so we go on days and weeks and months and, and maybe years, and you're that person. It's, you just don't get it. You hear the words, but it's not computing, so to speak. The disciples, these guys were following Jesus but yet what we continue to find in this gospel story is a group of men who were just kind of like I was that one day in the restaurant asking questions about some guy's colon. And the disciples just continued to stumble over themselves, and they just didn't get it. So much to the point where Jesus, in the stories that we're going to look at tonight, don't you understand? This is one of his questions to the disciples tonight, ultimately to us as well. Don't you understand? So if you have a Bible, go to Mark chapter 8. Uh, we'll have some, uh, some scriptures on the screen. And uh, if you're new to Genesis, what we do is uh, we walk through. Uh, sometimes I'll take a story and, and go back and talk about it. Sometimes it's just verse by verse. But we plant ourselves in the scriptures. This is Mark chapter 8. Let me read uh, the first uh, 10 verses. This is a story. A couple weeks back, we looked at when Jesus fed a ridiculous amount of people, upwards of 10,000 plus people. We come to another scenario where Jesus is feeding 
uh, a number of 4,000 plus people. During those days, another large crowd gathered. And since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a very long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? I have a feeling there's a long dramatic pause where Jesus is looking at them like, are you serious? Mark goes on. Jesus' first question is, well, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. And he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when they had taken the seven loaves, given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. I love that. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. No offense to women. First century, they did not count women. So you can only assume if there's 4,000 men, there's roughly about 4,000 women with some other children, some other youth there as well. This is a massive crowd that Jesus is feeding. About 4,000 men were present. And having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmutha. I love that when Jesus looks at this crowd, he says, I have compassion for these people. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that when Jesus looks at a crowd of 10,000 people, he looks at them with eyes and just is filled with compassion. Like when you just even look at a crowd like this size, maybe 85 to 100 people, is like compassion well up within you or maybe is contempt well up within you? How about like when you're just in a crowded mall or a a crowded, you know, subway, tea station type of a thing? When you're in the midst of this huge crowd, are you filled with contempt or are you filled with compassion? Because a person who's filled with contempt Ultimately, that person is led towards indifference, meaning we won't have any impact on those people. Why? Because they annoy us. But to the person who is ultimately, you look at humanity, you look at your neighbor, you look at the people around you, and you're filled with compassion, it leads you to create opportunities where you can express that you care. So this is not a small point or a small verse where it says he was filled with compassion. You filled with contempt, or are you filled with compassion? I'm going to venture to say that most of us, if we pass maybe a homeless person, maybe a disabled person, uh, maybe an elderly person, we would probably know how to demonstrate compassion to them, help them with whatever they might need help with. But how about here? Do you know how to demonstrate compassion to people here? Like a lot of compassion is just being kind. A lot of compassion is just being a hospitable person. Like, I'm going to venture, there are some of us who've been coming to Genesis for so long, we forgot what it was like to come here for the very first time. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but there's probably maybe four, five, six, seven of you who are here for the first time. 
my hope and prayer is that you would experience a community that is incredibly compassionate, hospitable, caring. And if we're going to do that, we need to get beyond our individualistic mindset to say, you know what? I've never, I've never seen that person before. I would love to go not talk to them about their colon, but I'd love to go engage them. Listen, who are they? Who, I mean, who are you? And I'd love to just hear a little bit of your story. Like, I just love that Jesus sees a crowd and he's filled with compassion because if you have compassionate eyes, you will live life very, very differently. Anyone can look at someone and see someone in need. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, well, that person's in need. But if you're a compassionate person, it will lead you to meet that need. And there's a big difference. Anyone can see someone else in need, but a compassionate person is someone who meets needs. Look at Jesus. He sees this crowd with him for three days, and he is stirred with compassion. What I love is that, what does that say about Jesus? For three days, these people are with him without food. How long would you have lasted? Think about that. Would you have bailed after like day one? Wow, I got some good stuff, heard some good teaching. It was good. I was challenged. I was encouraged, but no food here. I'm out of here. Maybe some of you would have been a little tougher, like I can hack two days. How many of us would have stayed for three days because we were so compelled by this person, Jesus, we just wanted to be around him? Food, no food, I don't care. If Jesus is here, this is exactly where I want to be. One of the things I was wondering is, if Jesus was so compassionate, why didn't he feed him on day one? If he's compassionate, like, day two, why didn't he kick in and be like, okay. Why did he wait for three days? Now, this is not, I don't have a verse for this, so I'm just doing a little speculation, so bear with me. I wonder if the three days, at some level, if Jesus is waiting for his disciples for one of them to be filled with compassion and say, hey, Jesus, it's been a full day. They have no food. Can we do something? Hey, Jesus, we're now on day two. Can we do something for these people? After three days, apparently none of the disciples came to Jesus and said, can we, can we do something for these people? And so Jesus throws them a softball, gives them an opportunity to knock it out of the park, and he comes to them with a problem. He says, hey, guys, we're in a very remote place. There's not much around. They've been here for three days. I have compassion for them. What do you think we can do? He doesn't tell them this is what we're going to do. He comes to them with a, an opportunity. He says, what do you think? And the disciples' response is, uh, in verse 4, uh, where... In this remote place, can anyone get enough bread to feed them? You would think that the disciples would have been like, hey, Jesus, we got some bread. We got some fish. If you would just bless it, I'm pretty confident there would be enough to go around. We can be an answer to this situation here. Rather than seeing an opportunity, they see an obstacle, and they respond to Jesus. Uh, we're in this remote place, and I love how Mark emphasizes, can anyone... Can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Just out of curiosity, how do you think that made Jesus feel? 
when he heard the disciples say, can anyone do anything about this? I can only imagine Jesus is like, what is wrong with you? Just like a month ago, you were there feeding 5,000 people. It's amazing that they could be in the very presence of Jesus, and they're like looking at him like, yeah, we got nothing. Uh, this, is, this is not good. We don't, we don't have anything. We're in a remote place, and there's no one here who can do anything. I mean, I can only imagine Jesus, the frustration level is rising. And Jesus, they didn't expect him to do anything. And I wonder how many times in our lives, we just don't expect Jesus to do anything. We get ourselves into these situations, into these issues, into these dilemmas, and we're like, I got nothing. We don't expect Jesus to speak into, to move. Like the disciples, they're standing in front of Jesus. They've seen Jesus raise someone from the dead. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've seen Jesus bring people who are blind their sight back, deaf, mute, paralyzed. And it's like, yeah, we got nothing. And I just wonder how many times we live our lives thinking, I got nothing. Jesus can't do anything into this situation. It would be like me hanging out with Bill Gates one day. And I'm like, gosh, Bill, it's crazy. I, you know, I've got all this debt, and I just I don't know what to do. Like, no one can do anything. I'm pretty sure Bill would be like, why don't you just ask? You're standing next to the richest, financially speaking, individual in the world. I'm not comparing Bill Gates to Jesus. I'm comparing the lunacy of me standing in front of someone who has as amount of resources as he does and not even going to him saying, hey, what do you think? Do you think you might be able to, I don't know, help out with some of your $50 billion? And how many of us stand in the presence of Jesus and we expect nothing from him? Why didn't they just ask Jesus? Well, two reasons I'm thinking is they just didn't think he could do anything about it. It's beyond his capabilities. It's a remote place. He can't do anything. Or maybe they thought that he could, but maybe they were thinking he just would choose not to. And I wonder if we fall into those same categories. We just don't think Jesus can fix this, heal this, speak into this. It's beyond him. This relationship's too messed up. This sin, too far gone. And so we expect nothing from him, and consequently we get nothing from him. Or we actually have the attitude of, yeah, he probably could, but he won't. I know Jesus. He's stingy like that. He's not generous. He only gives to those people who are like, like superhero Christians. Either way, whatever your view of Jesus is, it really needs to radically change as a Jesus who is bent on being generous and providing. Why? Because he has compassion. These guys were standing right in front of Jesus, and they could only see what they didn't have rather than what they had in Jesus. How many times can we only focus on what we don't have rather than looking at the person of Jesus and saying, because of Jesus, I have everything. There's nothing missing. I've got it all because I have Jesus. Jesus takes what they had 
some bread, some fish. He blessed it, and then he put it into their hands to distribute it. And all of them were satisfied. 4,000 plus men, plus women, plus children, ate that day, and they were fully satisfied. This is a bit of a side note, but this is an amazing picture of walls that Jesus is breaking down. I didn't get into this, but the area where they are currently located is in Gentile country. There are Jews and Gentiles who are now having a picnic together. And if you're not familiar with the background, you're not supposed to do that. Jesus is painting a picture through this picnic of Jews and Gentiles are coming together because of Jesus. These ethnic walls are being broken down. These cultural barriers are being smashed because of Jesus. And the Pharisees who are observing this, they're getting ticked because they're like, Jews don't eat with Gentiles. They are a dirty race. But Jesus says, Jews and Gentiles, let's have a picnic. It's a great picture of what the kingdom of God Heaven is going to look like people from all sorts of backgrounds. And this is a great picture of what Jesus is doing. Despite, Jesus does this amazing thing here of a mass feeding, as it were, of a huge picnic. The disciples don't get it. Jesus is about to rebuke them. But before he does that, some Pharisees come after him. Story goes on, Mark chapter 8, verse 11 and 13. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Some Pharisees came, excuse me, to test him. Give us a sign. Prove yourself. And Jesus said, No way. Gets on a boat and leaves. End of story. It's kind of a cool picture. Jesus doesn't even entertain them. He's like, why does this generation ask for a sign? I'm not going to give it to you. And he goes away. Now, the Pharisees' um, Old Testament uh, law would stipulate that if someone claims to be from God, a prophet from God, someone would need to say, you need to validate, you need to prove that you are actually sent from God. You're a prophet, so you need to validate your ministry, as it were. So maybe the Pharisees were coming just to see, are you really the real deal? The fact that they asked for a sign from heaven, they were not coming to affirm Jesus. They were coming to test him. They were coming to disprove. They weren't bent on like, we really want to follow you, so help us. They wanted to take him down. Now, the context here of a, a sign from heaven, Jews, Pharisees, thought the sign from heaven, a Messiah would come and kill all the Gentiles because the Gentiles oppressed the Jews. And so what they wanted was, if you're really from heaven, the ultimate sign is going to be that you will wipe out all of the Gentiles. So go at it. So it was like, breathe down fire and, you know, all of these things on the Gentiles, kill them all. That's what they are asking for. And it's a bit ironic that Jesus just said, you want me to destroy them? How about I, I just feed them? How about I love them? They had a very messed up view of what the Savior, what the Messiah was going to look like. And Jesus was sent not to crush people, 
but to bring life. So he says no to their request, not because he's not capable of giving them a sign, but even if a sign, even if they saw it and it hit him straight in the face, they wouldn't believe anyways because they didn't believe in him. I wanted to ask a question uh, and put it out there for you to think about. Is it okay to ask God for signs? Is it okay to say, God, give me a sign, and if you give me that sign, then I'll go this way? We usually do it when we're making decisions. We use language like, if he opens this door, it's a sign. If he closes that door, it's a sign. What if you do if you have two doors and they're both closed? Well, you're confused. And by the way, when we use this idea of open door signs, closed door signs, we're really just making God nothing more than a doorman at a hotel. And God's a little bit bigger than just a doorman, open doors, closing doors, open doors, closing doors. So is it okay for us to ask God to give us signs? Now, we don't have time to get into this because you could paint all sorts of scenarios and say, well, what about this situation? What about this situation? So I'm just going to jump and say, no, it's not okay. Because when we ask God for signs, we're basically asking God, take away the component of faith. I, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, people would be like, well, Gideon, he asked for a sign and God gave it to him. That's true, but just because he asked for a sign That's not necessarily the model we should follow. Many people are like, well, because Gideon did it, it's okay. Well, hey, David committed adultery. I got a verse. It's okay for me to do it. David murdered Bathsheba, husband. I got a verse. It's okay for me to go kill husbands who I'm trying to have affairs with their wives. Many of us forget about Gideon when he says to God this, Don't be angry with me. Meaning, I know, God, that this is not good, that I'm asking for a sign, so please don't be angry with me, but I am so weak in my faith, please give me a sign. And God was gracious and gave Gideon a sign. I want to challenge myself and challenge you. Maybe it's not signs we need, it's courage. God, I don't need a sign Give me the courage to step into what you've called me to do. Again, I know I'm repeating myself, but we sometimes are so desperate for signs because we don't want to demonstrate faith. We want to know everything, and then we make decisions based on solid, hard evidence. God, make this easy so I don't have to demonstrate any level of faith. So I want to encourage you, don't be that person who's continually asking God for signs. Get to know the character of God. Sit with God in Scripture. Live life, make decisions based on God's call, based on God's character, not based on signs and fortune cookies. If I open this cookie and it says something interesting, that must be a sign from God. No, it's just a fortune cookie. 
No, it's just an open door. No, that's just a closed door. Follow what you know to to be the character of God. And it's an amazing thing when we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, the clarity that comes with knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, and being familiar with his voice. Jesus now leaves and says, I ain't giving you a sign. Gets in the boat with his disciples. And he says this in Mark uh, chapter 8, starting at verse 14. This is where he's going to come after his disciples pretty hard. You'll really like this passage. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Okay, these guys are geniuses. We'll talk about them in a minute. It's because we don't have any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves, the 5,000, how many basketful pieces did you pick up? Twelve. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, like five minutes ago, how many did you pick up then? Seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Jesus says, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, that of Herod. By the way, yeast is typically a good thing. Leaven, a good thing. In the Old Testament, when we talk about yeast and leaven, it's usually talking about sin. It's usually talking about corruption, talking about evil, talking about hypocrisy. So Jesus is saying, be on guard against the evil, the corruption, the hypocrisy, the sin. Now, you would think that they would have all responded and said, wow, that's a great word, Rabbi. That's a really good thing. We've noticed how tricky and deceitful and sinful Herod is. We've seen it in the, in the Pharisees. Thanks for giving us uh, that warning. But rather than saying that, I can imagine like Peter's like, hey, guys, let's, let's group huddle. Uh, Jesus just said something about yeast. We only have one piece of bread. Yeast goes into bread. He's got to be talking about the bread. Like the collective wisdom of these 12 is about how much wisdom I had when talking to my buddy about his colon. And Jesus, hearing this conversation take place, rapid fire, eight questions. No time to breathe. Eight questions. Why are you talking about no bread? Useless conversation. Do you still not see, understand? Are your hearts hard? Do your eyes not work? Do your ears not work? Don't you remember what I've already done? The baskets left over from the 5,000. The baskets left over from today. Do you still not understand? Eight questions. Rapid fire. Which one's for you? Which one resonates with you? Why are you talking about these things? You're so missing the point. 
don't you, don't you see? Don't you hear? Is it a hard heart issue? Are your eyes, do they not work? Do your ears not work? Don't you remember what God has done yesterday? Not even yesterday, like 10 minutes ago? Like, which one of these questions hits you? Because at, some of, at the heart of each of these questions is the same message, is God is at work in your midst, and you're missing it. This is what he's telling his disciples. How can you not see? How can you not hear? I am at work in your midst, and you are missing it. Have you ever felt like that? Like you can see it happening, but it's not happening with you. And you just feel like you are completely missing it. These guys had a ringside seat to some amazing, miraculous activity. And it's like they weren't even at the fight. I mean, they are just ringside watching all of Jesus do all of these things. And it's like they completely missed it. You ever been at church and someone comes up to you afterwards and there's like, man, that was an amazing service. Like, I just felt like God was talking right to me. I, I've never experienced, like, it was so amazing. And you're like, did we go to the same service? Like, because I got squat. I got nothing. Michael rambled. Worship was all, I mean, how is it some people can have these incredible moments where they're seeing God at work? They're so open, so exposed to the activity of God. But then there are some who are like, ah, I didn't hear anything. All I heard was blah, 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 blah. How is it possible? Well, there are those who live with eyes, ears, heart, completely wide open to the activity of God. And then there are those who live blind and deaf to what God is doing. As I've already stated, it becomes a question of which one are you? Jesus is, these questions are out of frustration. Like, guys, really? You don't get it. How can you not see? How can you not hear? Don't you remember? Hard, hard. You can live eyes wide open, ears wide open, heart ready to receive. Or you can live closed eyes, closed ears, closed heart and miss the activity of God. Well, I hope all of us would come to the place of, I want to be the former. I want to be eyes wide open, ears wide open, heart. How do I do that? How do I get there? And really the answer Jesus gives is in the warning. He looked at them and said, be on guard. Be on guard against the yeast, Pharisees, and of Herod. If you're going to guard something, you have to ask yourself the question, is what I'm guarding actually worth guarding? And in this case, it's you. Is your life, is your soul, is your heart, is your mind, your eyes, your ears, is it worth guarding? So that you can see and hear and be aware of the activity of God around you, in you. And if you come to the conclusion that it is worth it, you're worth it, your soul, your heart, it's worth it, so you will guard what am I guarding against? I'll give you three quick things. Guarding against becoming self-righteous. The Pharisees were self 
righteous people. You guard against becoming a Pharisee in how you live. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. It's another way of saying we're not the most impressive bunch. He goes on, verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Verse 28. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Listen to verse 30 and 31. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Verse 31. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Your righteousness is in Jesus, not in what you do. Guard against becoming a self-righteous person. Your righteousness, your holiness is because of Jesus is righteous. Jesus is holy. Not because you pray, you read your Bible, you serve, and you give. It's because of Jesus. The Pharisees became impressed with themselves. Look at how we dress. Look at the customs we and traditions we honor and we pay attention to. Be on guard against becoming a self-righteous person. The second one, be on guard against becoming a self-dependent person, i.e. Herod. A verse that's often just used in a terrible context is Philippians uh, chapter 4, starting at uh, verse 12. says this, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every in in." In any and every situation, well-fed, whether hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Most people, like they are all juiced up for a sporting event, like I can do this because he strengthens me. Or I'm going to jump off this cliff because Jesus said, I can do all things, including jump off a cliff and land on my feet and be okay because I've got a verse. No, it's a verse that speaks to Whether you have nothing or whether you have everything, your strength comes because you have Jesus. Herod was a self-dependent person. I don't need Jesus. I don't need God because I have everything. We live in a very wealthy culture. And I don't mean just New England. I mean America. All of us in here are rich. You might not feel like it, but you are. It is so easy to become a self-dependent person. I can do it myself. I can take care of myself. I don't need anyone or anything. And we carry that mentality to God. I'll take care of this on my own. This is the person who can literally stand before Jesus and be like, yeah, I got it covered. Be on guard against being a self-dependent person. The last one. This one will be hard. Be on guard against becoming a self-dependent consumed person. You know who did this? He was an angel, an angel of light. His name was Lucifer. His name was Satan. Satan became impressed with himself. He became consumed with himself. Isaiah chapter 14 records 
how he became impressed. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who were once laid low the nations. Listen to the personal pronoun, I. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars. I will sit enthroned on the Mount Assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. Verse 14, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Some of us are so consumed with I. And if you are consumed with I, you have, will have no room for P, capital H. Guard against the yeast of being a self-righteous, a self-dependent, a self-consumed person. Be on guard against making your life about you. If any of those three registered, if they hit, just confess it. Confess that you've been a self-righteous, you know what? Confess that you have been a self-dependent. Confess that you have been consumed with self. God, forgive me for this. And then you were walking in that direction. Turn your entire life around. Repent and start walking where you are completely righteousness from Jesus. Completely dependent on Jesus. Completely consumed with Jesus. This is what Jesus is talking about. If you want to be aware, part of the activity of God, eyes open, ears hearing, heart receiving, Jesus says, be on guard. By the way, your life is worth it. So fight for it. Be on guard against these things. When you see it, repent of it. Jesus finishes, or Mark uh, finishes with a, an interesting story, and we'll close with this story. Uh, it's, I'm giving you a lot of stories tonight here in Mark chapter 8, but uh, this one is uh, the last part of Mark chapter 8. Uh, it goes like this. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. I love that we see friends in the gospel a friend is someone who begs on behalf of their friend, who does for their friend what they cannot do for themselves. A friend who will bring them where they need to go. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village, and when he had spit on the man's eyes. By the way, this isn't like Jesus hucking up a loogie and be like, ha-ha, and spitting in the dude's face. Okay, He's taking saliva, putting it in his hands, and rubbing it on the man's eyes. Took the man by the hand, led him outside the village, and when he had spit on the man's eyes, put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? This is the only time where Jesus, in all of the Gospels, asks someone, is it working? What do you see? I love this guy's response. He looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees. Okay, and this isn't like Jesus was like, oops, didn't put enough spit on his face. Let me put some more. Jesus is not just concerned with this man's physical sight. He's doing something for his disciples. A man could see in part. And then Jesus does for him. He puts his, his hands. He says, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. 
And then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. He healed him physically, but he did a twofold miracle. And Jesus cared enough about his disciples to say, guys, you're blind. Your vision is very blurry. If you will come to me, I will open your eyes completely. There's a physical healing here taking place for certain. But there is a spiritual component here taking place. Tonight, as we would close and enter into a time of worship and responding to God, I don't want anyone here to miss it. Jesus is alive. Jesus is at work here. He's at work in your life. And I don't want anyone to live their life just clueless, hard-hearted, eyes closed, heart not receptive, not listening. Maybe your prayer tonight is really a prayer of confession and repentance. I confess I have not guarded my life well. I have become that self-righteous, self-dependent, self-consumed person. Consequently, my eyes are closed. Consequently, my heart is hard. Consequently, I cannot hear God speaking. If you want to hear God speak, listen to what Jesus is saying. Be on guard. Tonight, spend some time in worship. Let's spend some time in prayer. Let it be your prayer. God, open my eyes so I can see you. Open my ears so I can hear you. Open my heart so I can receive you. Give me a mind that will understand you. God, do in me what I cannot do in myself. Jesus, I thank you that you can do these things. Jesus, I give you thanks that you can take anyone's eyes in here that are currently closed and open them wide to you. God, I pray that, Jesus, you would do that very thing. If there's anyone here tonight whose eyes are shut, Jesus, please open them so that they would see you as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. God, open ears that are closed to hear you. Open hearts to receive you. God, you can do these things. God, I imagine all of us in here have things we need to confess, have things we need to repent of. The self-righteous, the self-dependence, the self-being consumed with the I. God, might we respond to you in this place. God, hear the prayers of people here tonight. Give us hearts that would respond to what you have been saying to us tonight through your word. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.